Dialogue. My name is Danny Servic, and it's the Christmas week edition. Um, coming up on the end of the first three months uh, of the podcast, and as we kind of finish up the first quarter, uh, we all heard as players and as coaches what we tell teams, got to finish the quarter strong, got to finish, got to finish. And uh, I don't, I can't think of a, a, a more <laughs> appropriate finish uh, to the first quarter of the podcast uh, than the guests we have this week. When I think of Christmas, um, there's a couple couple main themes that kind of pop up in my mind. I think of music. love listening to Christmas music. Um, I think of the color red. Uh, and I think of sweaters. Uh, obviously going to parties and going to different things and ugly sweaters. Uh, and then lastly, obviously basketball. Basketball is a... Is a uh, uh, Christmas tournament sport. You have NBA games on Christmas Day all day, as you lay around, and uh, when you when you couple those those four together, in uh, combining with kind of uh, what the goal of this podcast is, there really was only one person that I wanted to to have on for the Christmas week edition, <laughs> and that is the uh, legendary coach uh, who just retired from Belmont University, Rick Bird. Uh, who spent 33 years at Belmont in the Music City uh, with the Belmont Bruins in their red, and where he became synonymous with his sweaters and the sweater vest. Outside of the obvious uh, reasons for the season, for the purpose of uh, this podcast and for, 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 for me, uh, he's the equivalent of basketball Santa. 805 career wins. Uh, is what Coach Bird finished with, um, and when, which ranks 12th all-time in Division I men's basketball career wins, which is just uh, incredible. Krzyzewski, Bayheim, Knight, Smith, Rupp, Calhoun, Williams, Huggins, Phelan, Massimino, Sutton, Bird. Uh, and if Coach had not retired back in the spring, he would be tenth, I think, uh, already or soon to be. So, um, but it as mind-boggling as the uh, those stats are, um, in the rarefied air that he lives in, to me the the story of Coach Bird is how he got there and how he did it, and without sacrificing his uh, beliefs of how things should be done the makeup of the kids that he wanted to do it with, uh, how they identified those kids, what they did, um, and just his just overall um, life approach, which is just uh, one that we should all aspire to be like uh, and try to be like, um, and how he led his program uh, to such incredible success uh, back in the NAI days when they transitioned to Division One, um, And so... Just a just a fantastic hour with him. Uh, really wanted to have it 
like I said, for the Christmas week when people have some time to slow down uh, and, and really enjoy it. I know as uh, a lot of coaches and, and families traveling to tournaments uh, to watch their sons and daughters play in uh, or just laying around the house. Um, it's very entertaining. It's very refreshing to hear how uh, he led his program with his beliefs of no profanity and how they dressed and, and everything um, and had the, the incredible success on the court, off the court, um, and then also mixing some fun about one of his, his best friends, Vince Gill. And we do find out where the beginnings of the sweater vest in his arsenal on the sidelines uh, began. So Merry Christmas. It brings me uh, a lot of excitement to uh, share this, this episode. Grab your cup of coffee, hot chocolate, eggnog, whatever your uh, beverage of choice is, um, and enjoy the, uh, the words and wisdom from one of the greatest that's ever done it, Rick Bird. not many uh, coaches that uh, have as distinguished a career uh, as our guest this week, but my my first two things that come to mind when I think of him are his sweater vest and that he has the coolest season ticket holder fan for the longest time in Vince Gill, the, uh, the great legendary coach who just retired this year from Belmont University. Rick Bird. Coach, how are you doing this morning, sir? I'm doing great, Danny. Thanks. I really appreciate you uh, taking a few minutes to uh, to visit with us this week. And, and you know, w- when we started the podcast project, it was about having a um, kind of having a source to have conversations with, with people that I thought really uh, made a difference in lives. Uh, currently making difference in lives, uh, and obviously through through the sport of basketballs, which is geared toward towards. And there are very few guys that, obviously, I grew up down here in Huntsville, and at the time when there was kind of the uh, Coach Meyer at Lipscomb, Belmont, and then obviously Birmingham Southern when it was initially Coach Dean, and then when Coach Rebel came and took over, that was kind of like the trilogy of of, of just amazing small college basketball. Um, and NAI, and where, where all three programs transitioned to the Division One level, uh, and so became a fan of yours very early on in those days, and then obviously um, here in the past past years of, of just your tremendous success. Um, but wanted to to have you and just share kind of your story a little bit, and 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 to to impart some some pieces of wisdom to the people that kind of to to listen. Um, if you don't mind, kind of what I like to do each week with, with everybody is just start from the beginning and kind of talk about their journey through the sport as a, as a young fan, young player, and young coach, and, and kind of how they got into it um, to roll it all the way back from your time in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. Sure. Well, I, you know, I was really fortunate. Uh, my father was the sports editor of the Knoxville Journal, and uh, his particular beat – uh, 
in the winter was University of Tennessee basketball. In the fall, he would cover SEC football. He wrote daily columns. But early on, uh, and I'm talking about uh, mid-1960s, I was, oh, 10, 12 years old. I would sell programs at the Tennessee basketball games. And I was allowed when the buzzer blew to start the game to quit selling. And I would go literally sit under my dad's feet under the press table because at that time there were none of these spectacular digital boards that we have today. They just had, they just had tables. And, uh, so I sat probably 15 feet from coach Ray Mears at Tennessee and could look to my left and see Adolph Rupp, uh, or CM Newton or other great coaches, uh, on the other end. And I just, I can't imagine that that isn't you know, 95% of the reason that I loved basketball and wanted to do something like coach, uh, when I grew up. And so I, um, I went to Doyle high school in Knoxville. I was a slightly above average high school player, uh, Went to Central Florida Community College and uh, quote unquote played a year, but not a lot. And uh, came back to Knoxville. Just just went to school for two years, and then the NCAA uh, came in and made freshmen eligible while I was in college, and that was the time at Tennessee uh, when they had Ernie Grunfeld and Bernard King. And uh, the coaches there, who I've known forever, asked if I want. They started a JV team and instead of a freshman team, and so asked me if I'd come play, walk on and play. And uh, I did that for a year, um, and then the next year, I, I was a student assistant coach uh, for the JV team, and. I was a practice player for the varsity team. So I would have some days five hours worth of time on the basketball floor. Um, so that's really, you know, while I was in high school playing, I coached youth league teams in basketball and in little league baseball. And certainly the, I don't know, the feedback, the nonverbal feedback you get from kids that respond to you uh, would have had a, an impact as well because uh, that was just fun for me and I felt like you know I felt like they kind of got it or they kind of heard me or you know that's probably the most important thing in coaching period is the guys listen to you do they trust what you're saying do they like playing for you do they want to win for you and, you know, I think I kind of felt that stuff with little kids that were 10, 11, 12 years old when I was uh, 16, 17, or 18. Well, that's uh, – that obviously kind of started the the laying, laying the groundwork and the foundation for you. Um, and then so talk, talk – do you mean kind of bullet point through that? So you're, you started your – 
collegiate coaching career at Maryville and then through Tennessee Tech and Lincoln Memorial. Just talk uh, uh, just a few minutes, if you don't mind, about those, those, those quick stops at those spots. And obviously, I guess you became sure. the head coach um, at Lincoln. Well, I was actually named a graduate assistant at the University of Tennessee when I was in graduate school there. And then they found out there was this new rule that you had to be in your fifth year. Uh, and because I'd gone to junior college and didn't go to summer school, uh, I was actually in my sixth year when I was in graduate school. And so they had to rescind that appointment. But almost as that happened, um, Billy Henry, who had had been a longtime coach at Union University in Jackson with some great teams, went with Tommy Bartlett to Florida as an assistant coach, went to um, – coach at Baptist College in, in South Carolina. He came to Maryville as the AD, the head basketball coach and the head baseball coach, um, and uh, asked me to help him. So I sort of jumped from what I thought I was going to do uh, to really a, a, a position of far more responsibility in terms of on the floor. In fact, he was still having to teach a class at Baptist College in the fall semester. So I had the team coached by myself through the week, middle of the week. I actually coached two different games that he couldn't make until he could get there full-time in December. So a lot of responsibility for guys inexperienced as I was, but I think a far better situation for me to learn than probably if I had been a graduate assistant at UT because I had been around Coach Mears and that staff and knew how they did things already. Mm-hmm. So, so I after two years as an assistant, uh, I got the job. Coach Henry named me the head coach at age 25. Uh, I made uh, the astounding amount of eight thousand dollars a year <laughs> uh, in that position. And the next year got bumped up to 8,800. So they must have thought my my 8 and 16 record was really good. (laughs) And uh, uh, so, but we we got things turned around. We we were 15 and 11 the second year, which um, may not sound terrific, but it was the most wins in 31 years at Maryville College. So so then uh, Tom Deaton, was an assistant at UT, took the job at Tennessee Tech. I'd known Tom for a long time. Uh, in fact, uh, Tom and Bert Bertelkamp, who played for him at Bearden and then went to play at Tennessee, uh, and I took a cross-country journey, and we worked two weeks of Washington State's basketball camp and said, well, while we're out on the West Coast, why don't we see if we can work John Wooden's camp. He had just retired at UCLA, but he had a camp in Thousand Oaks, California. And we, you know, we just thought, okay, it's the West Coast. What we didn't know was the camp was going to end at Washington State at 6 p.m. on Friday, and we were going to have to be in L.A. on Saturday at 6 p.m. It was a 24-hour drive. <laughs> so, uh, so we... we we tried to make four hour shifts all the way along. That's uh, amazing. It's really it's it's a wonder I'm still here. I, <laughs> I love so that. So anyway, uh, I, I was uh, assistant there for three years. Uh, I, I did miss being a head coach, 
and uh, the Lincoln Memorial job came open. I met the AD at McDonald's in uh, Cookville and uh, talked to her, and uh, they hired me. And so I was there three years. We, I inherited good players. And, uh, I came in the program that was already competitive, with Carson Newman being sort of the king of the hill in, in the East Tennessee NAI League. Uh, but we were able to, to beat them in the second, third year. I was there in the tournament in advance um, to the District 24 NAI finals only to lose to Lipscomb. Both of those years, one of those years, the second year, they won the national championship. Mm-hmm. It was it was my first in a long line of losses to Lipscomb. <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, uh, the Belmont job came open that year, and uh, I was fortunate to have a good friend, Ron Bargatze, who had played at Belmont, who had been assistant at Vanderbilt and the head coach at Austin P, who knew Kenny Sidwell, the dean students, and Dr. Trout, the president, and uh, I was excited and really fortunate to, to get that job in oh, March of 1986. Yeah, it, and then 33. It, that's, that's the thing that's amazing nowadays with, with, with collegiate sports um, and with so much of the chase of people trying to get to the next job rather than just appreciating the current job and working the job for you to to spend 33 years there um, and just, you know, so so few people have that opportunity to do that. And, and notwithstanding with the success in which you built from that program on the court, but I, I think the thing with you that is always, um, one of the things that's always just uh, blown me away from afar is just how you went about doing it. And with the makeup of... Um, your standards of what you believed in, of how you coached, of the type of individual you brought in, and whether that was at the NAI level of the success you had, and then when you guys transitioned to the Division One level and the incredible success you had there too, you never you never really wavered on that. And just spend a few minutes because I think that's one thing I I'll hear from from coaches and just being around and as they try to find kind of what their voice is and in their way um, that just how you adopted your style and where that kind of came from and, and talking about sure. how the no profanity and, and just in ha- holding the kids accountable and the academic success and just that whole, how you, how you built your success like that. Well, I think, I think that develop is the right word because I certainly uh, didn't just start coaching and, and have this utopian idea that, uh, we were going to have perfect kids, and uh, I, I I do hope and think that, that the character of the players that I or our staff has recruited over the years, wherever I've been, has been sort of first and foremost in my mind. Uh, partly, partly selfish because I just I just didn't want to deal with with guys that uh, weren't reliable, trustworthy, that um, I had to worry about whether they were getting up and going to class, uh, how they were going to represent our school and everything they did. Uh, 
I just uh, I don't think I would have survived in that world uh, that a lot of coaches feel like they have to survive in. And, and I would be quick to say that, particularly when I got to Belmont, even before I got there, what I saw in Belmont was an institution that I thought fit who I was and what I believed in and that I could attract the kind of players I really wanted to coach because of the the excellence of the academics. Uh, and, you know, as we went along we, and we started winning uh, both NAIA and then uh, when we made the transition, lost for a while, started winning again, then then we could attract better and better players that were also really good people. And I, and I think the, the last part of that equation is that uh, that we were recruiting kids most of the time whose parents were very involved in their decision uh, because they'd had great parenting from the beginning, not overly involved, not taking over, not living their life through their kids' success, but but when they would come to Belmont and they would meet our players, uh, our staff, uh, hear what we thought was important, and we were going to have a better chance to get those kind of kids um, than some other schools would because we, I'd like to think we did have standards. We had, you mentioned no profanity. We had, we, we had apparent standards that uh, have changed. I started to say slip, but that's an opinion. Uh, <laughs> that have changed over the years. And uh, that goes back to influenced by Coach Mears uh, at Tennessee when I was there. He expected the players to dress well. Heck, I had to wear a, a coat and tie to the pregame meal when I was on the junior varsity. So wow. uh, we've, we've changed a little since then. But, but still, uh, appearance is important. Politeness is important. Uh, Humility is, uh, I think, really important, and it's, it's, we're losing sight of that virtue, I think, uh, by the things we celebrate. And now every, every cornerback that breaks up a pass or everybody that uh, knocks down a three has to tell you how good they are. And uh, that, uh, that didn't always sit well with me. And uh, I do think that what I hear back from players uh, is that uh, those kind of things they didn't get at the time, but they appreciate now. Mm -hmm. Now I've heard you speak at um, clinics and different things before where you, where you really emphasize that just the appearance of how, when you walk through the hotel lobby, how you're going to look. And when we go to a pregame meal and, and just the, how that matters and, and being being as one, being as a team, and not having a bunch of just individuality, um, and I just think that is, uh, especially now with 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 all of the social media and everybody kind of having that platform and posting of of things, um, is what is one of the you know what led to having so many years of success for you there by just sticking to those guns and and not wavering from it. Well, I think, you know, I don't know. I'd like to think we were better on the court because of, of the little things that we're talking about. Uh, 
the discipline part of all that I think matters. Um, uh, but, but I don't, I don't know that I just, but I just think it's more important, more important than, than winning games. I think, I think my, my real first responsibility was to be an educator. I, I was part of, uh, an educational institution and, uh, I didn't have a lot of classrooms. I didn't have a whole lot of students, but I had, you know, 13 to 15 players and, and several managers and a graduate assistant or two uh, that was going to be influenced, good or bad, by what I said and how I did it. And uh, so, uh, I, I think that part's lost in uh, in today's college athletics. I, I think that. There's so much of a focus on winning and what that can do monetarily for institutions um, and for individuals who want to continue to to uh, move up the ladder and make more money. That uh, that all that stuff uh, goes away. It's diminished greatly, in my opinion. But I think the most valuable thing that a coach can do is be the kind of guy that helps young men. Uh, live their life after they leave there. Yeah. I, I read, um, for those that don't know, Belmont announced, um, I guess it was uh, earlier in the fall maybe, that they're going to name the uh, the court uh, after you. Um, I think it's coming up in February during your homecoming. Uh, but I, I, I read a quote that from you during the press release that, I think just summed it up, and I love it. And this is there's a lot of people that I think can say this that's like lip service, but just kind of knowing you through so many friends and, and people that have worked for you and, and what you are. I love the quote you said. I truly wish we could put the names of all the players, the ones who earned the wins and championships, on the court, but I gratefully accept this honor on their behalf. And I just that's that's you, and and but that's re- I also know how real that is. That that's not just a soundbite. Yeah. And um, well, it's 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 real because it's it's. True, not just true that I said it because they asked me to come up with a quote. Okay? <laughs> but, it, uh, but it's it's um, it, it's it's the, it's the way it ought to be. I, I just I think the the program that the team uh, is is about the players and it should be. And you know we can talk about a lot of things, and I'm not here to to say. In fact, I don't use the, I don't use the phrase. Um, the right way, because there's a lot of different ways mm-hmm. that, that you can do things, and there and 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 what I might think is the right way, you or someone else might legitimately think that's not the right way. But one of the things we always did with our media guides was to put the seniors um, on the cover. Uh, to put uh, to, to I don't I don't think. I was ever, and it, you know, it got away from me after the NAI years when we did a sports information director. And I think I used to do the media guide the whole time, did it all. Uh, but, but the player, I put the players before the coaching staff uh, in there, and I never, I'm, I don't think I was ever on any media guide. In fact, I feel pretty sure they don't even print them anymore now; they're just online. But, oh. um, but I just, I just think, uh, and some people would think that's a that's a negative that I'm that the head coach is the face of the program and he ought to be willing to get out in front of people 
and drum up support and get people excited. But that's a personality thing, mm-hmm. you know, and some people can do that great. Uh, but I just, I just truly believe that um, uh, it was best for me to stay in the background, plus to show, show the kids that the importance that I, that I placed on them uh, before myself, if, if, if those little things showed that. Um, so anyway, um, it, Belmont University was the kind of school where, where I could run the program the way that I thought was best for myself because I couldn't coach any other way. And, and I thought it was best for the university and, uh, I hope it's worked out. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, uh, spend a couple of minutes and, and ask, and we try to do each week kind of weave through to where we speak to not just coaches, but parents of some players, um, in terms of, uh, when you recruited and what you went out and you looked for in a player, what, what were some of the things that, um, and then of course you can maybe tie this together. Cause another one of the things I've always loved and heard you talk towards the end is how you incorporate analytics into style of play when, with the three point shot, but what, what were things in terms of, it can be, you know, skill specific, it can be other things, but just in terms of that, yeah. from, from your standpoint, that was important for a Belmont player. Well, it, I would be disingenuous if I said that the first thing we noticed and needed was a guy that was a good basketball player that would uh, hopefully improve our basketball program by coming to Belmont. And I can talk about other things that were important to us, but I don't. I didn't go recruit out on the sidewalk on Belmont Boulevard. You know, I recruited guys who were basketball players, <laughs> um, and uh, so. Um, so, yes, I, I don't, you know, I, I think, <laughs> I think that we were doing analytics before we knew what analytics were in a sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, I just, I could, I could, I was not real good in math, but I could do a little bit of figuring that if you shoot 33% from three, that's as good as 50% from two. Uh, and it, it's, you can shoot better than 50% from two, but you better take really good twos. Uh, and, and I'd like to think our team is always, if we recruited the kind of guys that could shoot the ball well from out there, that we're going to be well above 33%, you know, 35, six, seven, hopefully. And uh, plus I just, I, I'm an offensive guy first. That's not cool to say really. You're supposed to be tough and, <laughs> and, and defense wins games and all that kind of stuff. But, but again, talking about being drawn into coaching, one of the things I loved about it was, was figuring out ways to score. I, I, if I was a football offensive coordinator, I would love figuring out ways to, for plays to work, I think. Uh, and if, if I had any gifts, I, I think it was, you know, watching a team, scouting a team, seeing how they defend actions, and running things that would make it difficult based on how they they did it, and and um, everybody does things a different way. Uh, so, you know, when, when somebody trapped the ball screen really hard, 
and we had to play one way. Uh, when they switched, we had to play another way. When they hedged, we we had to do other things. And uh, so, you know, I I wanted to find players. I'm getting off my recruiting part, but uh, I wanted to find players that uh, skill wise. Uh, could shoot it, could pass it, understood the game, uh, were, were tough physically, tough mentally. Uh, it was a real plus if they came from a successful program. Uh, and most of our guys did. Most of the, our guys over the years played for good high school coaches uh, or maybe played in one of the summer programs that uh, – that we kind of latched on to because we saw the kind of guys they brought into their program, that they were actually organized and playing team basketball, uh, and that they were there for more than just the, the recruiting reasons, but to, to do the right things for the kids. So uh, we would look at all of that. Um, so that's the basketball side of things. Certainly as we got better, we got guys that were quicker, faster, um, more physical, uh, but but could still play the way we wanted to play, and you know that sort of culminated in in Dylan Wendler and a, and a first round NBA draft choice, which mm-hmm. you know I would have laughed at uh, ten years before that, uh, really. Uh, so, uh, but the other parts that were that were just as important in terms of deciding whether to recruit a young man was uh, his effort level. Uh, What kind of teammate is he? Uh, How does he treat the coaches and the officials and his parents? Um, If if they were way too much into cool, then they were probably going to lose me. uh, we wanted guys that understood the concept of putting the team ahead of themselves, even though that's hard to do. Uh, you've probably heard me say that the one one motivational sign in our locker room was it's amazing what can be accomplished when no one cares who gets the credit. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, some guys can read that, but they're not gonna they're not gonna latch on to it. And I think our guys can understand that 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 was valuable. And I think it ended up mattering to them when they saw the kind of success that brought a team when they had a team full of guys like that. So, uh, you know, we were we were slow to offer scholarships compared to a lot of people. We wanted to make sure on our end that uh, this was a young man that kind of fit our both our program, but also our school. I see, I see some programs recruiting kids to their school that um, that just aren't a fit. And I, you know, get into a lot of different reasons. But some of all this transferring is not just about basketball. It's about they went somewhere and it's just not what they were looking for as a school. We wanted to recruit guys that would have chosen Belmont if they weren't even an athlete. Uh, so a lot of factors, but we were we were slow because we wanted to see, from our from our sake, if it was a fit. But just as much from their sake, 
if it was a fit. Um, because again, you're going to, you're going to lose guys. If you just try to ramrod and talk them into going to your school when it really doesn't make sense for them. And we were low pressure, big time, low pressure, probably lost guys for that reason. But, um, I just always felt that in, in an individual recruiting situation that the decision was far more important to the young man than it was to our program. He needed to find the right place to go to school, and we hoped it would be Belmont. But um, I, I, was, I was simply not going to put pressure on him. We would have to be honest. Hey, we've got scholarships and we've now offered it to three guys or one scholarship and two guys but we didn't do that falsely mm-hmm. so that they'd make a quick decision yeah uh i um it's interesting um uh, i'm obviously really good friends with coach Acuff, and uh in addition to um <laughs> he's sharing the same where he likes the offensive side of the ball as well, he right. he recruited the same way. I I just have been around him for twenty plus years when he was here in Huntsville, sure. in in that way to where, you know, you see so many now schools that offer you know twenty thirty kids and they have two scholarships, three scholarships, and it's just kind of like just to, to get in it. And there there is something so um, refreshing. And like you said, it's right way, wrong way, your way, but I, it's the way that I also. Uh, appreciate that and then when you when you have situations where it is an honest conversation of like hey we've got two guys or three guys for this one and it's not trying to force their hand it's just being an honest kind of communication um in in in, well believe me it would be an unfair conversation for me to call a young man and say uh, you know we offered you that scholarship but somebody else took it if if i had not told them that there are we, we would try to keep the guys that we were offering scholarships to, we, we tried to keep them perfectly abreast of what our recruiting situation was, even to the point at times of saying, we really like you, we think you're good enough, but we've got a guy ahead of you. Mm-hmm. We're going to wait and see what he does. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I, you know, I think a lot of coaches would be scared to death of that, but I, I think that parents in particular – appreciated that approach and understood that when their kid came to Belmont that they could trust that they would be treated uh, that way throughout their career. Yeah. Let, let me, uh, before I move off of Coach Jacob, where did the sweater vest come from? Like, when did that start? Because obviously that is one of my favorite, and I've seen you with the with the full sleeve sweater, but the, just the I, that, that look of just – think it, it embodied your style of, of almost like the professor and just the very cerebral. Like where, where did that kind of come about and it became such a signature of you? Uh, I've been called a lot of things, but professor is probably <laughs> not one of uh, My best recollection of that is that uh, I was watching a, a televised game at Vanderbilt uh, between Vandy and Duke, and C.M. Newton was the head coach. And in that game, their whole staff wore sweater vests and, and like a golf shirt, a polo shirt, mm-hmm. not a, a full-length sh- shirt. And, you know, I 
I wore a coat and tie at that point, um, like everybody did. And that's, you know, that's okay, but it's a little cumbersome and, and coaches had start, started to move around a little bit more than, uh, than they used to on the sidelines. And, um, so, you know, a lot of us end up throwing the coat off anyway, either because we were getting hot or because we were mad at the officials. And, um, so, um, I thought, well, if, if Sam Newton, who's a classy guy in Vanderbilt, which is a classy school, can do that, then then maybe that's a good idea. And I think I'd seen another guy, uh, another coach somewhere, coach with a sweater vest and a, and a dress shirt. And I thought it sort of was a happy medium between dressy and uh, comfortable, I guess. Yeah. And then it just, then it just, uh, I, I guess it's like anything else. I don't want to call it a superstition uh, because I didn't feel that way about it. But it it just it just became the thing that was comfortable, and it was so I did it all the time. Except we did a few times. We we uh, in the coaches versus cancer game with pin shoes, and we just all of us on staff were wearing a Belmont coaching shirt, for example. So I wasn't like crazy superstitious because if I don't wear sweater best, we're going to get beat by 30. <laughs> well, I would say at, at the rate of, that you won, uh, I can understand where that came came about. You know, you go, I, I, don't, I don't know if it was eight of the last 14 years you guys go to the NCAA tournament in, in the the conference title. So I understand the superstition part and, and, and respect the living daylights out of that because that would be something that I would do. Um, <laughs> we, we were... Uh, Mike Morris, who was the the women's coach at Sanford for 17 years yep. and worked for Coach Brady, he's the uh, head coach at Randolph School in Huntsville now. And okay. uh, so we're over there, and I, I help him out with the JV team. And I earlier this year, I mean, it was freezing cold in the gym, and I was like, I, I said, I and he was wanting to wear the polos. I was like, I got to wear a sweater. And he's like, Are you going Coach Bird on me? <laughs> so you're like, you're synonymous <laughs> with the sweater vest. <laughs> And I, I was like, I don't know if there could be a better compliment that a, a singular look uh, can be attributed to somebody. So uh, the sweater vest is is all all you. Well, listen, I think I think it's safe to say that there was zero chance that any of my assistant coaches would ever wear a sweater vest. Well, you know, I, just something about not not acting like the head coach, or that wouldn't be cool at all. And and uh, uh, so. Uh, I, you know, it was. Uh, I love watching your staff. I would love when you guys. You wear. I've got quite a few. Uh, if, <laughs> okay, no, I like that. <laughs> I would love watching a, uh, one of your games, uh, whether in person or on television, because you would be there, sweater vest up. Coach Ayers would always be shirt and tie, no jacket. Coach Price would be full suited, looking like a GQ guy. You'd have Coach Hall. I mean, your staff would be. So they'd they'd have their 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 own looks, but no one would no one would dare uh, put the sweater vest on. Um, talk to, um, a, a couple more minutes, um, and, and just kind of wanted to get some more thoughts on um, in kind of tying back into the analytics. This is one of the things that I've I've thought of, and, and I know now as you're in retirement, and but I'm sure still watching games and kind of keeping close. What's been your um, impression on in college with the three-point line being moved back and obviously I would think that that would play you know favorably to schools like Belmont and I know coach Alexander's doing a, a tremendous job and still having the, the the cupboard that you left full there for him but in terms of has the have you noticed some changes in the games or teams that really have been saying all right we're going to do analytics and shoot the three even though they may not have players for that and have, have you noticed any kind of change in the games yet? 
Well, you know, I don't, I don't know if I would think it would help by moving it back. Uh, I guess you could look at it both ways. Uh, it's, we've had some players that I think would have struggled a little bit. Uh, we had a young man, Amanze Egekeza, that was a four man that we didn't even really know was going to be a three point shooter. And then he has a career of over 40%, but his, the kind of release and shot that he had wouldn't be as much range. Um, so I think it does affect certain players, but a short, shorter answer is that I really had, you know, if you didn't tell me it wasn't back and they didn't have two lines on the floor, um, I don't think the game is being played any differently. Um, I don't think anybody's going away from it or using it more uh, because it backed up. Um, it's interesting that the committee chose to do it, and I, I think they did the right thing because I think I think three-point shooting was getting better and better and better, and therefore it was becoming uh, too valuable in a way. But it's also interesting because when I was chair of the committee in 2015, it was all about uh, – all about increasing scoring. So this particular one, probably, and I know scoring is down this year. I don't, I wouldn't say it's all about that, but scoring is down, uh, and and it just so they're they're kind of they're kind of backing it up a little bit uh, by increasing the distance of the three point line. Mm-hmm. No, it's it is. Um... It's one of those things that uh, I was just kind of curious when the when the year started how that would kind of play out and um, you know obviously for the shooters of, of I don't know if it would uh, like you said if you're a great shooter the foot back probably does not affect them too terribly much but the ones that are kind of marginal shooters shooting the three and then foot back that probably then yeah. then changes it for them. Yeah, I could I, you know it's interesting I haven't really looked at percentages and. Ken Pomeroy's side is so good that I could probably open up my computer before we got through here and see what <laughs> the average what the what the average is right as of this day and what it was a year ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, just pure common sense. It's it's going to be down some this season. But generally, when something like that's done, uh, it takes a few years to get used to it. And then you sort you almost get back to normal. Mm-hmm. Um, one 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 final kind of fun question here before we finish up. So I, I remember. Um, so I finished at Birmingham Southern in 1993, and uh, one of who was a redshirt freshman my senior year was a kid that came up and played for you and was a, a, a tremendous player, Al Allen. And I remember coming up yeah. to. Um, I don't know if it was a one-for-one trade, and then Tommy Daly came down to Southern, and Al came. <laughs> I don't know if there was like an NAI deal uh, yeah. done back then, but I remember coming to watch you guys play Lipscomb uh, to watch Al, and of course they had Lipscomb had Pierce, and it was. But when, like Vince Gill, like the, the the people you had sing the national anthem, and it was just like, are you are you are you kidding me? And and then like that was kind of I didn't begin to to appreciate and through the years just the 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 fandom of some of the people but the the Vince Gills had to be one of you've had a lot of fans over the years but he's probably one of the more uh recognizable ones uh 
just did, where did that kind of come about and just for for his love of basketball for you the school and, and just him being such a supporter of you well uh, and Vince Vince is easily the most significant and most consistent fan um, I met I met Vince after my first season at Belmont um, on a golf course we wow. both were playing in a in a um, you know one of these charity scrambles or something and um and sometimes they put two groups on a tee and Vince was not famous at that time, but he had had uh, one record out and I knew about him. So I just introduced myself and found out that he liked to play basketball and was a very good golfer. And uh, I, I really liked country music at the time. Not just crazy about the modern country music, but that's, that's another podcast. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and, um, so, uh, we just, he just started coming to games. I mean, he, he started coming consistently and, and, you know, through last year he would, if he was in town, he would be there. Uh, he's a big Predators fan, but he would be at our game if they were, if they both were playing at the same time, which says a lot about the kind of friend he's been to me, uh, and to our program and our school, uh, and, and you know we've we've had others here and there um, that came some, but nothing like what Vince has done. But then the, you mentioned the national anthem. Well, you, you could you could line up Belmont students for every day of the year and find a good national anthem singer. Mm -hmm. It's it's remarkable the kind of musical talent that is on that campus. Uh, I just went to Christmas at Belmont. Uh, and to see the excellence, I, you know, I'm no, I'm no great symphony critic, but I, I couldn't tell you that that wasn't the Boston Philharmonic uh, as good as those kids are yeah. uh, at what they do. So anyway, uh, it's that's been a plus, you know, it's been a plus. Vince did a celebrity basketball game for over ten years for us, raised money that we split between the music business program for scholarships and the athletic program and had the biggest names in country music history in our little Strickland gym playing basketball and doing an impromptu show after it uh, from Garth Brooks and Bobby Mandrell and Conway Twitty and George Jones. And uh, you just go on and on, Reba McIntyre, Amy Grant. Uh, so, you know, that doesn't happen in, uh, in, in very many other schools no. across the country. No, it does not. The uh, that that's the thing. It's interesting, you know. Obviously, and for for reasons where the the Chapel Hill with Duke and North Carolina, but the Battle of the Boulevard and just the proximity of those two schools and the 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 history of of the two programs is is just one that I I don't think unless you're kind of from down this way or just kind of a fan where you followed it can begin to appreciate like how close those two schools are together. Uh, and in right. the rivalry of those two for those years, being right there in the in the music city like that. Well, you know, in there, it's it's interesting for a lot of reasons, I think. But uh, during the the NAI years, um, once really from our second my second year on the next nine years. Um, 
then we battled each other out and we were at the top of the league every single year. Um, and we didn't have the Titans in town. We didn't have the Predators in town. So when, when we played, it was played up big time on TV sports, uh, in the banner in the Tennessee. And, uh, so now, now you might not even see that, that the two teams are playing. We're not, not in the same conference. We have to, therefore, we play games in November and or December when people aren't quite ready for college basketball, really. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we've been on the other end of, of the spectrum, but uh, uh, Belmont's had a little bit better of them in the past several years. And so it's, um, it's interesting to see that you moved to Division One where the stakes are higher in so many ways, but um, but that rivalry. I don't think you could have sixteen thousand in Vanderbilt's gym like we did uh, back in nineteen ninety mm-hmm. uh, anymore. Uh, and I I don't think there'll be another small college game ever played where there's that many people at the game. No. So uh, it's it, it's it's a great rivalry. It's two good schools uh, for the. Uh, we don't like each other for a couple of days out of the year, but uh, <laughs> besides that, it's it's there's been a lot of respect between the two. Speaking of small college, I would I would hate if if I didn't bring this up, just in terms of like the fandom. So obviously, um, the transition with Division One, but all of the, I think all of us that played in the kind of the glory NEI years. Um, right. were or have been fans of the programs, especially at Birmingham Southern when they they went back to Division three and, and and scaled back. And so all of us Southern guys, um, for a large part, have just kind of you know been Belmont fans for for this past you know decade plus. And so there was a text thread. Um, I guess it was last December when you guys played UCLA and you run the last second play, and literally right. <laughs> Coach Rebol and Brent Carter, just some of the some of the names from those years. There's there probably 20 of us on it, and we had a version of it that we called Panic. We're like, "There's Panic!" You're like we were all like celebrating like through the phones and texting one another, and it was kind of like <laughs> a small college alumni like cheering, and uh, it was amazing. So like that play resonated all the way down uh, I-65 in, in in all the uh, the streets here in Alabama. <laughs> well. Uh, that's great to hear, and you know, I just that just uh, reinforces that the kind of stuff that I have no idea is going on. Yes, no, uh, it totally does. I, I, I've got I've got zero social media exactly, and uh, but I do know that that you know that particular play uh, did sort of I guess go viral if I'm using the correct yes, terminology, yes. and uh, uh, because I. Uh, I, I do have assistant, you know, I'm assistant coaches that are all on all that stuff. And, uh, so no, that was, uh, you know, I, I was just really lucky Danny that, uh, in my last year that a lot of really good things happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I couldn't, I, you know, I just couldn't have chosen a better. And then I was pretty sure what I was going to do all year long. So it wasn't like, Oh, it's over all this good stuff happened. I better get out while I'm ahead kind of thing. Uh, um, so, but, but that, that win, I mean, and UCLA was, didn't, you know, John Wooden wasn't coaching and Lou Alcindor wasn't playing, but, uh, 
but it was, you know, it was like our North Carolina win from several years before, mm-hmm. just, uh, just uh, an amazing thing. And, to, and just the way that play unfolded, because, um, there was a timeout prior to that and, uh, it was UCLA's ball and, uh, and we were up two and I told the guys, no matter what happens, if they tie or go ahead, we're not calling timeout. Here's what we're going to run. And as it turns out, we're behind. And a lot of coaches wouldn't agree with uh, trying to rely on a play to win the game. But you know, when you're when you're when the odds are stacked against you overall, I think you take that chance. And so, uh, and as you might remember, very similar situation against Maryland in NCAA tournament that didn't work out. Yes. As yes. Well, uh, but. But that's just great to hear those stories. I can't tell you to this day the people that come up to me and and talk to me about our Duke NCAA game in 2008 when we lost by one mm-hmm. and where they were and what everybody was doing. Uh, it's one one of the great things about what I got to do. Yeah. Well, we we, we you've had a, uh, a an Alabama chapter of the of the of the fandom yeah, of the Bruins for many, many years. And I would say this too, uh, just kind of in closing that I know I always, I love getting around uh, offensive minded coaches like yourself, coach Beeline, coach Acuff, guys like that. And there's always that. And uh, I, you know, defense wins championships, but you know, I like offense type thing. I would think the fact that, you know, where you rank 12th uh, on the list of career victories with 805, um, that you might be on the right side of the argument as, as well. That, <laughs> that I, I joke all the time with friends, like, you know, you win the game if you have the most points. Like, that's still on, on the side of, of the thing. And it's just mind-boggling to see, like, you know, Shershevsky, Bayheim, Knight, Smith, Rupp, Calhoun, Williams, Huggins, Phelan, Massimino, Sutton, and then Coach Bird at 12th. It's like, um, it, it, that just has to be – completely humbling to see your name on the list like that and um there's just so much i think people can learn from uh how how you carried yourself how you built it how you did it uh and like you said i love the part where you said it may not be the right way but it was your way but i think that would be a way for others that could probably try to emulate some well that's very kind and and uh i guess if you if if you care about how you're thought about or remembered or whatever you want to say, I'd far rather it be on that side of things than the than the number of wins or, or the spot I'm in because that's going to change. And um, I, so um, it's it just, it, I guess at the end of the day, I always thought that you could do things legitimately with integrity uh, and still win. And, uh, um, I, I hope that maybe in some way uh, our program proved that can happen. No, well said. Coach, I can't begin to uh, thank you enough for taking some time uh, in, in, in visiting with us, and uh, I wish you uh, continued success in the retirement and uh, look forward to hopefully uh, seeing you at a game at Belmont here success soon. On the, success on the golf course, Danny. That's right. That's right. Let's, keep, let's keep priorities straight. So. <laughs> All right. Happy holidays. Uh, have a great Christmas, Coach, and we'll talk soon, okay? My pleasure. Thank you, right. Thank you, Coach.
Merry Christmas. And thank you so much for listening to another edition of Pro and Dialogue. Uh, just an absolute blast to, uh, to visit with Coach Bird. I hope that everyone was able to take away something to make them a better individual, parent, grandparent, coach, and use that as you move forward into uh, the new year. I hope everyone had some, had some time to reflect upon 2019 um, and, and make some plans uh, as we move forward into the new year uh, to be better. Uh, I'm really excited to uh, continue to use this uh, podcast as a, as a platform to, to share just relationships, friendships through all the years that I've met to help uh, to help others. And we've got some amazing guests lined up already for, uh, for January. So uh, please go back. And if you're not already a subscriber, subscribe to the podcast. It's available wherever you get your podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Podbean. Uh, there's some so fortunate, so blessed with the guests we've had, ranging all the way back to the first one with Greg Stolt, with NBA China, to Rod Strickland, to all the way through. So go back uh, as you have some time here over the week uh, and listen. And we look forward to seeing you in 2020.